Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Andreas Steno Larsen is the chief global strategist at Nordea Markets. In this episode, we discuss what made Andreas so interested in foreign exchange and central banks, how he views the global economy going forward, and why he believes building unique knowledge in a specific field is essential for building an exciting career in finance. Let's start the episode. This episode is sponsored by Norwegian Block Exchange, a Norwegian cryptocurrency platform where you can buy and sell the most popular cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, with one of the best prices and lowest fees on the market. NBX is registered with the Financial Supervisory Authority of Norway, and keeps customers' funds insured. Join over 19,000 satisfied clients and sign up with your bank ID at nbx.com. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Their first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports, as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. Their second mission is to create a completely new way for companies to reach their investors and vice versa. To change the way people look at investor relations. Their initial core product is now available for both iOS and Android. And stay tuned for additional features during the coming year. Some key points. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets today and plan to add more during the year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can easily do in their app. And they have a lot more in store for the back of half of the year. So make sure to follow them on Twitter at Quarter App. So check out Quarter, spelled Q-U-A-R-T-R. And you can find the links in the description. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Bin. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Volnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Okay, welcome back everyone. Super excited to be joined by Andreas. And Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. If you go all the way back, do you remember your first memory about finance growing up? Well, I think the first clear memory I have um, from the financial world uh, was participating in a uh, fictional equity game when I was probably maybe, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, something like that. Uh, My dad was employed at SE Bunkins uh, Asset Management at the time, so he sneaked me into that internal game that they had. Uh, I'm not even sure that it's compliant anymore to have such an internal game in the uh, fictional equity game um, from from the Danish newspaper, but at that time it was. Um, And uh, I participated in that game and actually won it against all of these portfolio managers, uh, even if I was 10 or 11 at the time. And I, I recall betting on a couple of Danish shipping companies in this equity game, DS Norn and um, DS Tom. Uh, and I'm not even sure that I was aware of how, when, and why a shipping company would perform or anything like that on the stock exchange. So, I mean, it was it was pure luck. Uh, but I held these two equities and basically just 
beat the hell out of everyone <laughs> in this game. Uh, so that was that was a pretty fun experience, and I think that that gave me a taste of of uh, the, the real life in in, in finance. And then, second thing uh, that I really recall was was um, I think it was in ninth great um I, I i wrote uh an article in history on pros and cons of having a fixed exchange rate regime in denmark uh, pretty nerdy stuff given that it was in ninth grade um but i think my dad convinced me of doing so um so so those are the sort of the two clearest memories i have from my childhood uh, and it got me started in a sense but tell me a bit about that influence from your father then because that has to be an instrumental growing up then yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I mean he uh, he worked as um, in in SE Bank as asset management at the time, but he also uh, prior to that worked as a chief economist in, in, in various Danish banks. Uh, so of course he uh, he always wanted to discuss markets, um, the economy when he got home. Uh, and slowly but surely, I I started to get to a point where I could also challenge what he said. <laughs> In the beginning, it was one way traffic, I guess. Um, and and nowadays, uh, we simply don't disagree on anything at all. Um, so the, <laughs> I think my dad considers me like uh, the perfect reverse indicator, and I do so with him as well. Um, so so for now, we we cannot agree on anything. But I guess it also shows that um, sort of two different generations of economists can end up working in very different ways um, because we have kind of similar backgrounds uh, at least from from the uh, university side but but uh, nowadays we have two very different approaches to to investing and all that stuff but before deciding to pursue a career in finance did you explore any other option or was it like crystal clear from the beginning that you wanted to pursue finance I guess more or less. Um, I never really paused in my uh, in my travel towards ending up where I am right now in in Nordea. Um, I studied a, a master's in finance, uh, so pretty straightforward choice if if you want to uh, to work in in financial markets uh, already in in high school and and. Uh, and and before that, I already started exploring equity markets. I already started exploring how to to invest myself. I I explored uh, various news sources and all that stuff. So it's been pretty straightforward for me. Uh, it's it basically always caught my attention how financial markets uh, reacted to to the real world. So what made you ended up in, in Nordea? What was the journey to get there? Um, it was actually a bit of a coincidence that I ended up at, at Nordea, um, but I, I found out that uh, Nordea had a team called Alpha Strategy. Um, so it was a team uh, designed to, to come up with what you call Alpha Strategies. So uh, basically financial investment models trying to, to um, deliver a, uh, a, a Alpha return um, in, in financial markets. And uh, then I joined that team as a, a very junior. Um, I was still a student at the time. Um, and uh, it was a really, really good school for me since uh, they they had a view across asset classes, so I I was actually uh, brought up both looking at equities, foreign exchange, fixed income, uh, and to a certain extent also uh, even non-liquid asset classes. Uh, so to, to me, it was sort of the perfect schooling. Uh, the team doesn't exist any longer, um, but uh, at that time it was a pretty big team here in Nadia, and um, yeah, the perfect school since it was so cross-asset. Uh, 
And talk a bit about the position you have today and what, how do you typically structure a perfect workday? Uh, right now, I, I have a, uh, a position where I look at, at global markets, basically. So, so I'm not too focused on Scandinavia. Uh, we have Scandinavian specialists in, in each of the countries. I look a bit at, the, at, at Danish markets since I, I sit here. But otherwise, I'm mostly focused on the rest of the world. Um, and uh, right now, I, I am part of a free to form and team forming Nodea's cross asset views towards institutional clients. So I mainly speak to pension funds, hedge funds, central banks, and those kind of clients uh, of, of Nodea, um, and talk about uh, how to allocate um, across assets um, and across geographies. Uh, so how to structure a day in, in, in this kind of role. Um, it, it's it's actually very tricky to say. Um, I, I would almost go as far as saying as that I have no structure at all. Um, since I'm sort of on the sell side of the equation, uh, I speak to portfolio managers, so people taking investment decisions in, in various uh, institutions. Uh, then I'm very dictated by the relevant themes for investment uh, professionals. And I'm also very dictated uh, by the news flow and by um, various uh, events. So it is very tricky to, to structure it in, in, in a specific way. It, I, I guess I'm very reliant on, on what happens in the market. And uh, the funny thing is actually that uh, when, when markets move a lot, then I'm usually very busy commenting on that but I don't necessarily have a lot of uh, talking points to clients on such days since they're very busy sort of maneuvering the moves in financial markets on those days as well. While I, I usually have a, a sort of a much more scheduled day with client meetings um, and, and client interceptions on days that are more calm in, in financial markets because that's, that's basically when you have the time to sort of try and debate what would be the next theme for financial markets. How should you position yourself in investment wise um, for the next potential big drivers? Um, so it, it's a bit upside down for me. It, it's actually uh, more calm when, when markets are very violent and vice versa for me. But but how do you prefer to learn and sort of understand the financial markets? Do you prefer to have sort of uh, time to do deep work, to sit still, to read a lot of papers, to do research? Or do you prefer to interact with a lot of other smart people to bounce off ideas, etc.? I, I tend to think that I learn the most by talking to clever investment professionals as, as much as possible. Uh, so I try to have at least a couple of hundred client meetings a year, which is quite a lot. Um, and uh, usually you get a good sense of the big drivers of financial markets when you talk to a lot of investment professionals in, during the week, for example. Uh, you, you gather a lot of information on how uh, various topics are perceived by investment, investment professionals and you gather a lot of information on the actual positioning in, in markets, for example, are people upbeat about the expectations uh, or are people downbeat? That's that's really much easier to, to figure that out when you talk to a lot of people actually taking the investment decisions. Uh, but of course, if I want to, to um, become an, a subject matter expert uh, within a niche. And I think that's really, really a key thing to focus on how to be that. Then you need to set time aside to figure something out that no one else <laughs> is able to. Um, I, I, tend to, I tend to think that if something is very straightforward to understand, then there is absolutely no 
chance of of you having an edge on that topic since it is fairly easy understandable for everyone while if you dig into a topic for financial markets um, that is much more incomprehensible then there is actually a possibility of you gaining a uh, a knowledge that could get you an edge on financial markets uh, so that's always something to to bear in mind when you um, when you study financial markets uh, in particular when you do it professionally that you need to look for niches uh, because uh, the markets that are the most covered they are very tricky to get an edge on I mean, that's a super, super interesting insight. And talking about one of those topics, I mean, what got you so interested in foreign exchanges in the first place? It's, I, I think that I consider foreign exchange more based on fundamentals than other asset classes. Um, it may be a bit of a bold statement, uh, but it's, it's, there's a very clear line of events from politics to central banks to foreign exchange. And you can see the reaction immediately. Um, so it gives you a chance to talk about right about everything when you look at foreign exchange markets. That's also intriguing. Uh, it's it's probably the market that is driven by the biggest pamphlet of variables, uh, while um, equity markets uh, and also to a certain extent fixed income markets they are a bit more univariate in, 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 in terms of which variables actually drive the uh, the price action. So the foreign exchange market is also the market where you could come up with the most bizarre <laughs> investment ideas. Uh, and given that I tend to have a bit of a weird brain, then I kind of like that. <laughs> but but how, how early did you get interested in foreign exchange? Was it pretty early as well? Yeah, I actually think so. I mean, already in, in, in the ninth grade, I, I wrote about the pros and cons of having a fixed exchange rate machine. Um, so it was it was early. Uh, and I figured out that uh, a lot of the smart um, uh, hedge funds in the world, they they exploited um, the, the, the foreign exchange market. Uh, in a sense, um, it's pretty interesting if you're actually able to, to create persisting returns in FX, since it is a zero-sum game, right? Um, there's always a winner and a loser uh, in the sense in, 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 a, in an FX market. And I find that very intellectually stimulating um, that if you, you know, manage to create a persistent return, then, then you have something uh, really smart going on for you. Definitely. I wanted to try to start sort of from the first principle and talking a bit about so currency. So in your mind, is there what characterizes typically a strong currency in your mind? Well, it, first of all, uh, if you want to find a, a strong currency, you, you need to look at the fundamentals of it being a uh, reserve currency in various central banks across the globe. Um, I think the reason why the dollar is is so strong right now in a historical perspective is that it's still uh, the reserve currency number one worldwide. Uh, and what's needed to become a, um, a strong reserve currency? Well, you, you need a strong and liquid bond market um, that you can invest in. Uh, that's very uh, important. Then you need um, to be um, a an exchange um, between people. So if you, if you look at the dollar, it's used for exchange. Um, 
it's used for exchange in commodities. It's used for uh, exchange in, in various financial instruments. Uh, and that's why it's, it's, it holds such value compared to, to, um, to other currencies. So those are sort of the very, very fundamental and long-term structural trends to watch for, for currencies, whether they, they hold these um, characteristics, whether they um, are obvious choices in, in, in uh, FX reserve for a central bank. If you look at it more tactically, um, then it obviously matters for a currency, um, whether uh, the underlying central bank is hiking interest rates or uh, or the opposite. Um, so there's a lot of analysis on central banks uh, in, in my everyday life, uh, given that uh, they are such uh, an instrumental driver of uh, the actual exchange rate development uh, on, on a more short-term uh, horizon. And so those are sort of the key characteristics I'm, I'm, I'm watching out for. Where's the central bank headed? And on a structural basis, uh, is this the currency that is used for um, exchange of goods or, or, or assets? Uh, and is it a, a currency that could be uh, an increasing part of FX reserves globally going forward? How does that argument look on the other side if you're looking for very weak currencies? Do you flip the argument on the other side or are there other variables to consider? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you would certainly flip the argument on, on the other side, uh, but there is also one uh, variable that is absolutely instrumental in terms of, of uh, pointing out weaknesses in, in currencies, and that's predictability. Uh, and by predictability, I, I mostly refer to political stability. Uh, worst case example right now is the Turkish lira. Um, you have... Um, a central bank that is 100% without independence. Um, every time they take a decision that uh, Recep Erdogan doesn't like, then he lays off the president of the central bank. He's done so, I think it's four or five times within the yeah, last year. And every time uh, the market reaction is, is super clear, uh, the market simply dislikes the Turkish lira as a result of this. Um, at some point, uh, I guess the market can end up educating Erdogan on this, but uh, he, he hasn't reached that conclusion yet. Uh, so that's that's one focal point to watch out for political stability and independence of the local central bank uh, focal points for a currency. Makes sense. So so we got some Twitter questions and I think it, it's good to take them now. So one was about the Norwegian kroner, uh, the multi-year weakness. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, it, it is a bit of a puzzle um, because fundamentally Norway is in such a good state. Um, but I think the interesting correlation now for the Norwegian krona is the one uh, versus um, international equities. Since the, the Norwegian oil fund is now, I think it's roughly three times as big as the Norwegian gross domestic product per year, then um, the investment decisions by the oil fund will carry a lot of repercussions for uh, for the Norwegian krona development. Uh, and since Norway is, well, basically the biggest biggest trust fund worldwide by now, then uh, it matters a whole lot for the Norwegian krona whether equities gain or, or, or lose. Um, so the Norwegian kroner uh, is uh, is more or less an equity game by now. Uh, and then I think there is an, another overlooked angle to it, uh, which is the um, ESG angle. Um, obviously, since Norway is um, is so oil heavy, then uh, I would argue that it's a feasible 
thesis that the Norwegian krona has been weakened as a result of foreigners exiting positions in Norway due to ESG reasons. Um, some of my colleagues in Norway have, uh, have also spoken about this topic, uh, but it is a tricky one to, to truly prove, uh, but it makes a whole lot of sense given the amount of focus that, uh, that institutional investors have on, uh, on the ESG component right now. Totally. So another one was the interest rates in Denmark versus Norway and how negative interest rates have changed the financial environment. Well, yes, I am uh, basically sitting in the epicenter of negative interest rates uh, in, in Denmark. And, and we've struggled with those for yeah quite a, quite a few years uh, after all. I think the most interesting thing that you can uh, point out in terms of negative interest rates, and that's basically both the case in Denmark and in Germany, is that uh, you've seen savings going up as a result of negative interest rates. Um, so if you're a simple saver and you are faced with a negative, negative interest rate, then you on average actually decide to increase your savings simply due to the fact that you have a negative return on them. Uh, and that's completely upside down uh, from the thesis of the uh, local central banks. Uh, the whole point of going to negative on interest rates is obviously that it should spur some, uh, some economic activity. But if you just start saving even more as a consequence of it, then obviously you don't get that, um, that reaction in the economy. Um, we have a a super interesting lab in, in Sweden. They, they went from uh, substantially negative interest rates to zero uh, over the course of the past two years. And I would argue that it's completely impossible to see any negative side effects in the Swedish economy of those two interest rate hikes, uh, which should work as a signal for for the European Central Bank. The Danish Central Bank is, is obviously not uh, completely in charge of the monetary policy since we have an exchange rate pack against the euro. Uh, but the European Central Bank at least should watch what's going on in Sweden since we don't really see any negative side effects of those two interest rate hikes back to zero uh, from, from, uh, from uh, minus rates. But why do you think that that thesis doesn't work in Denmark? Well, I mean, in Denmark, we are obviously relying on what's going on in, in Frankfurt um, due to the exchange rate pack. So we cannot decide to have a completely different interest rate uh, compared to the Eurozone since it would lead to a breakup of that uh, euro pack. Uh, so that won't happen. Uh, it's, at least it's a political decision and uh, there is basically no debate on it. Uh, so in terms of the European Central Bank, um, they are slowly but surely starting to debate negative interest rates and repercussions of it. Uh, but I'm not sure that they're anywhere close to actually uh, following the Swedish example of going going back to zero. And I think the reason is that uh, they fear that the euro would gain strength against a lot of currencies worldwide if they hiked interest rates back to zero. Uh, and we know that there is uh, uh, at least one uh, southern European economy uh, that would basically fall into pieces if the euro gained too much, and that's Italy. Um, so everything that is um, that is done in, in Frankfurt by the European Central Bank has to take into account that Italy is a very fragile element of the eurozone. And I think that's the exact reason why uh, they, they, they don't even dare to debate interest rate hikes. In, in the macro sense in 2021, what has been sort of the biggest surprises for you that you didn't see coming? Well, first of all, if I if I look back on the on the 
past 12 months, um, then I think it's a perfect example of the world being upside down in the sense that the equity market is actually leading the real economy and not vice versa. I, I mean, I, I was basically brought up um, with the thesis that the economy decided the fate of equities. Uh, but nowadays, it's fairly clear that equities move ahead of the actual economy. Uh, so to me, um, the most surprising element was how quickly equities recovered from uh, from the COVID crisis. Uh, you could almost argue that um, the equity market predicted the lockdowns since we had a, a marked reaction even before the lockdown started, uh, maybe just a week ahead of it, but they, they, they predicted them. Um, so in, in that sense, I, I, I really find it intriguing um, to figure out how, how to forecast equities when you cannot forecast equities by, by using economic variables uh, or, or you cannot use um, stuff that you usually used. Um, so you need to be to be much more focused on high frequent data to uh, to figure out what's going on in financial markets today than just five six years back. Interesting. So looking forward, I mean, it would be great to have some predictions. I mean, you you were extremely bullish on gold. Can you can you tell us that argument and how you were thinking about that? Well, I'd, the reason why I, I like gold um, is that it's a decent hedge against inflation. Uh, and I'm not sure that uh, anyone really dares to think of a complete regime shift on inflation. Uh, but I think that there is a scope for um, a very different inflationary environment over the next couple of decades compared to what we've seen over the past decade. Um, the reason being that um, politicians and central bankers, they always calibrate the response to a crisis based on the most recent crisis that they have experienced. Uh, and this time they calibrate the response to the COVID crisis based on the lessons learned from the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009. What happened in 2008, 2009 in Hinside was that we had a massive demand crisis. Uh, so there was no um, trust in the economy uh, and there was no trust between uh, financial intermediaries, which led to a massive, massive, massive demand crisis. The COVID crisis is not a demand crisis. I think we have fairly sound evidence uh, of that now. Just look at uh, real estate markets in, in each of the capitals in, in, in the Nordics, for example, there is no whatsoever demand crisis. Uh, and what you've done over the past 12 months here is that you've, um, you've basically uh, added fuel to the demand fire each and every month via a big fiscal uh, stimulus uh, and via monetary stimulus. And I think that's uh, pretty interesting given that this is mostly a supply shock. Uh, this is not a demand crisis. So this is a supply driven crisis since it, it, it was basically impossible to to supply the economy with the uh, amount of goods and services that were needed uh, through, uh, through Q2 last year and also parts of, uh, of Q4. Um, but there's no demand crisis and we are acting as if this is a demand crisis. So I think we will overheat basically right about everything. So and how that, do you that, think inflation yeah. can go? How, how do you think inflation can go going forward? Uh, well, and I, I would not be surprised to see double-digit inflation in the U.S. this year. Uh, the U.S. is clearly the worst example here because they run a deficit of almost 20% of GDP. 
you've never ever seen that outside of war times. Uh, even if the U.S. is in, at, at war quite often, then uh, they, they 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 usually don't run deficits like this. Um, I think we have a couple of observations that were worse during the Second World War, uh, but this is completely out of league with anything we see during normalized times, um, and. Honestly, I don't really see the scope for it. Uh, it. It doesn't make too much sense given that there is no clear demand crisis. Um, so the US is the worst example here and I would expect double digit inflation this year. Uh, on a more structural basis, then um, I would argue that inflation will probably move one to one and a half percentage points higher than what we've seen in, in the past decade. Is, is that much? Well, it, it does matter. Uh, it does matter for interest rates, uh, and it does matter for um, for financial markets in general. I think there is a bigger risk of a regime shift in an upwards direction for inflation than um, and basically, uh, yeah, it is the biggest risk I've experienced in my adulthood. Uh, and it feels kind of weird to talk about inflation for me because I've, I've basically never experienced it. Um, uh, and there's a bit of, of, of cry wolf over this debate uh, since a lot of economists have been scared of it over and over. But I, I've never ever raised the flag before now. Uh, so so I, I really for once see the scope for it since we calibrate the crisis response as if this was a demand crisis, but it's not. Another concept I wanted to talk to you about was also the universal basic income and the role you think that will play going forward in the financial system. Yeah. I mean, I I tend to think that we have already slowly but surely sneaked universal basic income um, in via the back door in the U.S. Uh, the direct transfers that we see from the Biden administration, but uh, that we also saw from the Trump administration, um, is a sort of de facto temporary universal basic income. The interesting thing is whether uh, it's possible to roll such temporary programs back again. Uh, I, I find that much, much trickier than, um, than widely anticipated. Uh, we have a couple of temporary programs still in place uh, after four decades in Denmark, just to give you an example of it. Uh, so it, it is much trickier to roll back free money um, once you've impl implemented them, uh, in particular in a democracy. And um, thankfully, we have democracies across the Western world, uh, but it's very, very tricky to roll back such temporary relief setups. Um, and if, if we assume that some sort of universal basic income will be implemented uh, in many West Western countries over time, over the next decade, uh, then I would argue that it's the most inflationary signal that we've seen uh, for the economy um, in, in many decades. Since it puts the, um, uh, the workers in a much better negotiation spot than what they've been in in decades. Uh, if you look at wage increases in the bottom of the labor market, they haven't been um, material for, for decades. And that's clearly uh, mostly a U.S. phenomenon, but also present in, in parts of Europe. Uh, and if you implement universal basic income, if you introduce that, then you will put them in a much, much, much better negotiation spot. Uh, and then, obviously, it, it wouldn't be a super strong signal for equity structurally if, if it were to happen. But but given that you're, you're arguing that it's very tricky to roll back, you think that it's here to stay and it's going to take part of the new financial structure? It, certainly in the U.S., yes. 
uh, I think it will. It, it's here to stay in 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 one way or the other. Uh, in Europe, we haven't moved as close to it yet. Uh, so maybe we will we will not see it implemented in Europe until the next crisis hit. Uh, but as soon as you introduce this as a crisis measure, then it's at least a part of the toolbox every time there is a crisis. Uh, and let's assume that the economy takes a hit when you decide to uh, to withdraw this kind of stimulus from the economy. That wouldn't be too big of a surprise to me uh, that you start to see a, a slowing momentum as soon as you start trying to withdraw parts of, uh, of the crisis tools. Then it's basically first at hand if you want to introduce a, a new set of stimulus measures to to re-increase the momentum in the economy. So I think we're slowly but surely getting there. Uh, and there are also good effects of it, uh, but side effects for for financial markets are not necessarily super bullish for, for savers. I want to switch gear a bit and talk about art because you have invested in an art company. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that interest? <laughs> Is it an interest in art or was it just like a great company that you wanted to invest in? Well, I, 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 um, I have invested in a company called Splish. Um, so it's, um, it's a small uh, online art gallery, uh, but we're trying to, to move um, towards being a, um, a high tech, highly technological auction house. Uh, and point being that uh, millennials to a much larger extent than former generations um, are they, they're much more inclined to buy online that's 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 an easy check mark to make but they um, they also have a different view on experts so a lot of expensive art right now um, is in the hands of experts but the millennial generation um, they are much more inclined to look into other sorts of expertise. Uh, and I think um, the current set of market players are completely unaware of this tendency. Uh, you can just see it from how millennials tend to trade financial assets as well. They wouldn't necessarily call the bank in the same way our parents would have done, right? To get a tip on equities. They go to Reddit instead. Uh, and I, ex I expect something similar to happen in in, um, in the uh, space of art, uh, and we're trying to front run that uh, via this uh, via this new company. But how did you get involved in that company? Was it coincidence, or did you someone you know? Yeah, um, I actually bought something from the platform, uh, and I really liked the way that they presented it. Uh, I, I almost never go to a shop anymore, um, and I tend to like to find my expert information myself instead of meeting people in real life um, when I when I uh, look for expertise and products. So I, I bought a, a piece of art uh, from this company and then um, I got involved. Uh, so I took a meeting with them afterwards. They wanted to, to, to hear why I bought it and, and all that stuff. And then uh, we, we got the conversation going. In the future, would you like to get involved in more investments or is this a one-off that you would like to do beside job? Well, it's it's tricky to say. I, I mean, I, I certainly like the idea of uh, seed funding startups, uh, but I also need to find a balance. It's a fine balance act whether I have the time to involve myself in in more. Um, I'm currently very a very passive investor in in Splish, so I I, 
I don't spend a lot of hours uh, on on the company, uh, and whether I I take on new investments such as this one, um, I think it's tricky to say. If if the right opportunity is there, for sure, uh, I I really find it intriguing so far the investment I've done in in, uh, in this company. Sounds super interesting. Um, before going on, we talked a bit about talking about some of the favorite books you read. Do you have any recommendations for people? Uh, I have a few boring ones <laughs> initially. I, but I, I think it's a very good idea, no matter whether um, you have a true interest in um, in central banks or not, to read at least one book uh, or one biography from, from a central bank um, chief or former chief of a central bank. Uh, my personal favorite is probably Paul uh, Folko's book. Um, so he was in charge of the Fed uh, during the, the period of, of very high inflation. Uh, as far as I remember, it's called The Quest for Sound Money and Sound Government, something like that. Um, and the interesting thing about reading um, the thoughts of a former central bank boss is that you get a good insight to how how they think. Uh, and it's maybe one of the very few important inputs to financial markets that will not be automized anytime soon uh, or automated, right? So you will still have regular people taking decisions with a lot of repercussions for all financial assets in central banks as far as, uh, as, far as I can see in, in the coming decades as well. So you, need, you simply need to figure out how these people think um, to to have an edge on their decision making, uh, so that's that's one clear recommendation. Read something from a uh, a former t- uh, chief of a central bank, and then I also really like the book Black Swan by Nassib Taleb. Um, he's by the way a um, a professional douchebag. If you follow him on Twitter, he's so rude against everyone trying to ask him questions. But his book is pretty good. Um, so uh, the book is called Black Swan, and it. Um, it's of course a book uh, about black swan events. It's um, I think I actually think he invented the title himself or the uh, the phrase himself. Uh, these unpredictable events th- that uh, carry a lot of repercussions for financial markets, but also society in general. Um, and the very interesting thing that you learn from the book, uh, also back to my point on on the COVID nineteen crisis response being calibrated by the Great Financial Crisis response, is that um, most people tend to have a very simple ex-post analysis of, of Black Swan events, such as the Great Financial Crisis. It's probably not a, a textbook Black Swan event. Um, but even years and decades after, we have very simple explanations for extremely uh, incomprehensible events, such as the Great Financial Crisis. Uh, and we, uh, the lessons that we learn are very, very simple. And that that um, uh, you will get a lot of examples on on why that is in in the Sims book Black Swan. So so read it just because of that. That's two very good ones. Uh, just in terms of your own reading habits, how much do you read for yourself? Well, I I tend to read quite a lot, um, but I usually don't spend too much time reading uh, what Donald Trump would call mainstream media. Not because I hate them, uh, but, but because it's very rare that I find new information. Um, given that I I follow th- uh, things in in economy and business so closely, uh, so I I I basically spent the most time watching Real Vision. Um, so this is a um, 
yeah, I guess you will we'll call it a video media um, with with daily interviews uh, with experts in in in, in various topics, um, and I tend to like that uh, that kind of format more. I like to listen and I like to watch more than read. Um, then it's easier for me to to um, to get a lot of information in a short time span. Uh, so real vision is also a great recommendation from uh, from here, and I don't hold any equity in the company. So. No, but, but I mean you did, you've done you've done many great interviews there. So I mean yeah. it's 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 a super high quality media company. So just a last question before we wrap up. So just some some final advice for people that are starting to pursue a career in finance. I think one thing you touched upon earlier in the podcast was that uh, ability to find that niche and to yeah. be really good at that. Maybe you can expand that concept and if there are other advice, that would be great as well. But I think that one is a very good one. Mm. Well, if, if you're pursuing a career in, in finance, uh, whether it's uh, on the sales side in the bank or in, the, in a portfolio manager's um, position on the buy side of the equation, then I would recommend you to be extremely focused um, since being a specialist is what uh, really gets you going in, in, in a financial career. Uh, don't expect that you're able to get an edge on the broad market, but you are able to get an, an edge on a very specific niche of the market. That's possible if you work enough. Uh, so that's that's something to really bear in mind. Focus, 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 and don't expect to be able to, to beat the market in, in all asset classes. Uh, my own niche, if I should put it like that, is that I've done research on central bank liquidity um, to a very, very large extent. Um, so I consider myself subject matter expert on central bank liquidity and how that filters into various asset classes. Uh, and it's a theme that um, has grown in importance over the past five, six years since these uh, quantitative easing programs from central banks are uh, of, of such importance to uh, developments uh, across uh, financial markets. So that's one thing to um, to really bear in mind. If you want to pursue a career as a strategist or an, as an economist in, in a bank, then I cannot stress enough how important it is to say something that is just a bit out of line with what everybody else says. Um, I, I truly try to ask myself that question every time I write something or every time I, I do an interview. Is this something that everybody else is already saying? Then why should I spend time on saying it? Um, so find something that is not already a consensus and focus on that. Uh, and that's also why I don't spend too much time reading Financial Times, The Economist and stuff like that, because it is just one big consensus um, story that you get from such uh, news outlets. Uh, not that there is anything wrong with that, but it doesn't give you an edge on anything. Um, and finally, if you're starting to, to consider investing, um, also here, focus on a niche and don't be too active. I've never ever seen anyone trying to invest fundamentally having success being extremely active if you if you want to be extremely active then you need to to uh, to look at high frequency strategies um, and basically those strategies are not fundamental they're based on uh, whether you're faster than your peers or not and that's a technological battle not a fundamental macro battle that's a perfect ending Andreas. thank you so much for taking the time it's awesome thank you it was a pleasure 
Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to @chrisvonheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.